Hello and welcome to the Everyday Novelist. Toward, we're now towards the end of January. We've only got one or two more of these to go. Oh boy, what a month. <laughs> <laughs> I am your host, J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am joined by your other host, Dale Carragher. But we are doing it. We are, we are, we are, we are, we are managing it. It's happening. Yep. <laughs> just the two yes. of us today. Yeah, just the two of us today. Kitty is, alas, otherwise engaged. Weirdly, I had expected me to be gone today, but it's not me, it's Kitty. So uh, I have a cat. If that helps, um, she's, she's, I have a dog. Not, she may, yes, she she's may not bark. Yeah, she <laughs> may bark because there's a tractor outside doing tractory things, and it is offending mm-hmm. her sense of space to hear such an engine in the way that, or in the area that she is not personally policing. So, <laughs> yes, mine mine is chatty, but uh, not at this hour when there are sunbeams. So. Cool, cool. Well, let's uh, do the check-in. Where are you at word count while oh, being back in the retreat? Yes, I did. I just came back from a retreat, so I am at 4456333. Oh, my God. You're totally going to beat the pants off of me. Hey, it's going to be a first. Is <laughs> it 4563? Six, yeah, three, 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 six, three, something like that. Who cares about okay. the last ten? But yeah. so, yeah, so I um, had an article due, and I the article then um, sparked a few other things, and I went, I discovered there was a blog post I had to write, and I did a bunch of Kickstartery related cleanup stuff because it's time to fulfill the next set of rewards, and um, I was also terribly blocked coming back from all that nonfiction to the book uh but i broke through the block this morning so i might actually have a respectable word count the next time we meet but so far this month including all the nonfiction, i have got twenty-one thousand one hundred seventy-six. so i should um mention really quickly yes. that kickstarter reached out to me they did and as an author who's done a Kickstarter, because the number of authors who are using Kickstarter has like increased a lot, and it's I don't know, there was a revenue thing. I think it's a focus group question, but I was like, look, I did a Kickstarter a long time ago, but Dan really did it for me. Um, but I did not offer to connect you to. Do you want to be connected? Yeah, to yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Please, because Sorry. if they wind up liking me, they can boost my projects. Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. Um, let me just... Yeah, this is totally, we could delete this later or what have you, but welcome to the nitty gritty of author networking in the background. Um, I, I handed that off to my assistant, so let me just, um, thingy, let me just make a note that I should get her to. Back in the inbox, please. Um, yes, I don't know if you're going to end up deleting that or not, but there it is. Uh, background nitty gritty, everybody. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, so you're oh. up on me by, uh, in, even including my nonfiction, you're up on me by 24,000 words this month. That's crazy. Uh, I did start with 10K or so. Like, so I did have a jump in. Lead oh, you did? Oh, that you remember? did? Remember? Oh, well, it says uh, first it time you had 6,500, so. Oh, okay. All right. I thought it was more than that, but that was that was notes and things, but yes. Oh, okay. um, so some of that is not fresh words, but but yeah, I had a very good writing retreat. Uh, it was five solid days of writing, and I realized that I really like seven. So I'm, these writing retreats where I go and do it with somebody else, I'm going to really try to fly in morning wise or fly in in such a way that I can write that write that first day. I tend to always Ooh. write on the flight back, but because uh, I'm, you know, I've got things I want to do. Yeah. So, so I do it like around that. in your head that you have exactly. to get out. Yep. But yeah, it's good. It's coming along well at 45. We're over the midway point, which for me is not a lull. The lull is Dan and I have talked about this before that my lull is at the two thirds point. So I, mm-hmm. I think I'll have momentum for another 10 to 20 K or so. And then suddenly I'm going to be like, Oh, oh. but you know, that's how life goes. I thought I was going to have a lull cause I don't have a lot of notes for the back end of this book and not a really strong outline. 
But uh, because it's the third book in a series and I've so much set up that like I it it it's really rolling along fast and, and there's some really cute little things that I've been able to put in and stuff. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Cool. For me, the block was that I got I got to a point in the um, in the first story that my guy is telling the person who saved him. And I realized that although I know what this book is about in terms of its premise, I didn't really know what it was about thematically or anything like that. And any other time I've done a book that's got an unconventional structure, like down from 10, I've known, even if I didn't like sit down and spell it out for myself, I've known what it was I was writing about. I knew what, what internal well I was drawing from. And I didn't know with this one. And so I spent several days of having a good solid think and I figured it out. So that was block one. And block two was that having gotten there, it fitted with what I had written so far, but it meant the plan I had for this first story was completely undoable. Um, it just didn't make any sense at all. And I realized that there were also a lot of other plot problems, overarching plot problems that this first story as I was planning to do it was going to introduce. And so my subconscious was rebelling. Mm. Um, and uh, so then I figured out that part of this um, dissolving United States thing would have to be the Jones Act. And once mm. I, are you familiar with the Jones Act? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. for, for the listeners that don't know, the Jones Act is a 1915 or 1916 law that prohibits the travel between U.S. ports of any boat or ship carrying commercial cargo or passengers that is not entirely built, maintained, flagged, uh, and flagged in the United States and crewed entirely by United States citizens and owned entirely by United States citizens. And uh, the what it was intended to do was protect the U.S. shipping industry from competition by those awful Germans who were getting into the into boat building at the time. And the effect was that it totally wrecked the U.S. boat building industry, and it made really stupid things like uh, cargo ships that are going for, that want to go from Alaska to Seattle. They have to stop in Canada in the middle, or they have to go across to Russia. Lots of fun, stupid stuff. But in terms of an economic collapse, having the Jones Act out of the way would really increase the ability for the interior of the country to trade with itself, even if the roads are falling apart. And so it occurred to me that my, my, um, my world has to have river pirates. <laughs> because there have to be rogue boat building operations that are that are pulling like scrap boats that were built in other countries and then rejiggering them together so that they technically comply with the Jones Act but then you'll have regulators and enforcement people that think that that's a cheat and so there'll be this drug war on the Mississippi River with um, people that are trying to ship like food and tools and things like that in, internally in the U.S. and the federal government that is opposing it because it's in violation of the Jones Act, which nobody can repeal be, despite 20 attempts, attempts over the decades to do so. And that gives me a premise that plays squarely, that allows me to play squarely into the emotional and cultural themes that I'm exploring in the book and also allows me to bring some high adventure into a story that I was worried was going to be really sedate. So, yay! That's excellent. It's funny how you have that, like, one... Well, I mean, you can have more than one in a book, but you get these epiphanies where you're like, oh, everything slots into place. Uh Uh-huh. This is the missing piece. Yep. Yeah, and sometimes it happens with... Like, I just had that happen with a character's sexual identity, which... uh, turns out it's a side character but it turns out to be an important plot point and i was like weirdly resisting i knew i was gonna have to write his you know like so this is the side character whose home planet we're going to and he's the voice of reason because this is a planet that's in, in the midst of civil war and he's like you don't want to build a big 
entertainment dome on a planet that's in the middle of civil war that like specializes in mass murder like this is a very stupid plan (laughs) aliens like and the aliens are non-violent species and they're just like yeah it'll it'll be fine um and the local is like please please don't do this also i ran away i ran away and became a rock star like i don't want to go home again um but i needed him to have a relationship on this planet as well so there was another like emotional component so he had had a big breakup that also was one of the reasons he'd left the planet Mm -hmm. and i had kind of sort of this was one of the things that i had written way at the beginning of book one Um, And I was, but I was like, weirdly, like some part of my psyche was weirdly resistant to it. And then I realized that he's Polly and it's a two person relation. There are two people waiting for him who stayed together. And then I was like, oh, that works perfectly. Uh, That was a big like plot twist gimme for anybody who out there is going to be excited (laughs) about my books. So sorry, spoiler. Um, But it is, it, it takes a while. So maybe you'll have forgotten by the time you get back to it. But um, anyway, but it was it was an equally epiphany moment because like my my some part of my writer brain was unwilling to write this reunion. And I was like, why is it not working? Like I was happy with the idea of of this plot point, but it's not working in my brain. And then my writer brain was like, you had the relationship wrong. And then I was like, oh, of course I had the relationship wrong brain. Yep. Surely. Thank you. Yep. Yep. So yeah, so that's that that was really fun. And that and that is kind of it's kind of balancing what's going on with the relationship of the main characters in a sort of flippy way that also is really kind of fun and foily for that that those threads of this book as well. So it's yeah. Uh, that 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 is that is good cuz yeah, cuz I can't really talk about the details because that's too much of a spoiler, but it's good. It's going well. And it is a similar sort of baby epiphany thing. But I think big ones happen a lot when you're writing, but also sort of sequential little ones about world building and characterization and stuff that, that especially if you're an experienced author or an experienced reader storyteller type, you know, for like DMing or something, Mm -hmm. these things come along and it's your hindbrain that knows there's something narratively flawed and that there needs to be a fix, but you just have to keep writing towards it until you, and I think often like writer's block is this kind of thing where you're, it's it's your, your subconscious is saying something's wrong. Sometimes it's a plot thing. Sometimes it's a character thing. Sometimes it's an internal block because you've got some emotional or psychological issue around something in the story sometimes it's an if you're if it's early on sometimes it's an emotional block because you're intimidated by the idea of finishing or Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. else like that those last two i feel like are earlier tend to be earlier on yeah they do yep but uh yep you gotta either there's only two things you can do to get around it one is to write through it and the other is to take a lot of walks where you have to just sort of mull and cogitate and sometimes you have to do both and sometimes it's knowing what like chassis you're on what like like narrative like all the way to like top level foundation like oh am i writing a hero's journey or heroine's journey am i writing Uh for instructor is this romance beat whatever it is that you're you're accidentally employing which we all kind of tend to um and and thinking you're on one or not and and you're actually on the other and that's the thing Yep. And and that's the kind of thing that those, those long thinks can help you sort out. Really very much so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, do we have any questions today? We do. We've got a few, Uh, probably uh, next time we get together since it'll be our, see, we've got what? Uh, One, three more. Three more. Uh, Wednesday, Friday, and Monday. All right. So we've got like, six questions so one of these that uh, on one of these days we'll do a couple and i'll just okay. them up or something yeah but here we go from nicole again who is our most fertile questioner this month probably hey, nicole, thank you so bad about getting the episodes out but hey uh, <laughs> nicole says uh let's see what has been the most difficult story book or series that you've written what no. made it so what what was the easiest and why? And there's a second part of the question, which we'll get to after we do this part, because it's also complex. Okay. 
I got to pull up my website with all of my books. Uh, for anybody <laughs> who cares, on my website underneath books, there's an all character books tab, which is basically every book I've ever written. Mm -hmm. um, so, Dan, why don't you take the which was your most difficult question oh, first? And boy, I'm going to scan which... through and figure it out. <laughs> oh, God. No, I have to figure it out. You. Um... Well, I can I can roll through them really quickly. The most, the most difficult series is the big series. Yours, um, big series. The big series, the one that started podcasting as predestination and other games of chance. It's the most. It's the most difficult because it's the most technically challenging. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I write it for a while, and then I have to stop and grow into it because it's not just technically challenging in terms of plot or characterization or keeping track of multiple timelines, but in order to do the story in a way that. I will find satisfying and believable, I have to stop sometimes and become a domain-specific expert on how the economics of this industry work or how lobbying in the Byzantine Empire works or, you know, all of these things that are aspects to doing a geopolitical thriller that mm -hmm. is being driven by mental illness, basically. It's being driven by deeply psychologically unhealthy people who are sort of working out their personal salvation through the canvas of this massive war and, um, and accidentally causing the war in the process. Um, so it's, you know, I write for a while, I get uh, sometimes 50,000 words, sometimes two, 300,000 words done on it. And then I grind to a halt because I have strayed into territory that I don't know well enough to just riff on. And I have to stop sometimes for a year or two and learn so that I can go back to it. Um, so, and by the time it's done, it's going to be six volumes of between one and 200,000 words each. And uh, it's going to be huge. It's already about 600,000 600, words long. Um, I'm about halfway through book four. And um, I'm liking it. And it's going to be beautiful if I finish it before I die which I intend to, unless I die by accident sometime in the next few years. But talk about, I mean, it's, it's, kind of like, it's kind of like starting your PhD when you're three years old and then having to grow in, it, that's what it feels like, having to grow into the whole uh, subject as you go. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a monster of a thing. So before I say some of mine, and there are some, um, it would be hard for me to pick a top one, but um, there are two kind of, I guess, colloquialisms within the author community that I think we should address because they're mm. commonly known challenges for most writers. The first one is the sophomore slump, which is a lot of authors who have tremendous success or, with their first book really mm -hmm. struggle with their second one. Yes. It's very common in the lit fic universe, but it can also happen if you're writing a series your first book gets published, it does really well, and you haven't written the second book one, book mm -hmm. yet. I was really lucky in that I'd written the second book by the time my first one came out. So when my first one started to do well, like the second one was kind of already done. So I didn't, I don't really suffer from um, imposter syndrome that badly anyway. But so software slump is sort of a known thing that a lot of authors go go through. Um, and then the second thing that a lot of authors go through is incompletism. And I don't know if there's a colloquialism for this one, but I tend to call it author directile dysfunction, which is uh, an, inability, <laughs> an inability to finish a series or to write the last book or books in a series. And yep. we're not going to name names, but there are certain people out there <laughs> oh, yes. who clearly suffer from that. Yes. So, um, so those are just two. I actually genuinely enjoy writing last books and series and for me those almost always go the smoothest so i i had that experience on suave rob three it was so satisfying and i, I lantham is the were, next one lantham's the next one that gets finished yes. and then i'm looking forward to that too oh god i'm i'm if dreading you're writing the kinds of books where you get to tie things up kind of uh, neat in a bow oh, at the end so of a series good. it's a joy it's such a pleasure because yeah. you've like scattered all these threads you're pulling those threads all back together yeah. i tend to do big like fan gimme reunions where i'll put mm -hmm. like old favorite characters back in you know still doing their thing and do check-ins yep. stuff like that in last books because yep. i'm allowed to get away with it because 
in a true series, in a series where they're linked, there's an arc, people are reading one, two, three, and four. Mm-hmm. By the time you're on three or four, you've attrited almost anyone who's not loyal to that series. So yep. that final book is for is more for it's the just readers for the fans. Anything, yep. Yeah, anything else we write. So yep. it's just last. Yeah, I, I I must say I am dreading the final Lantham book because I don't know if Lantham lives through it. Oh. And I'm afraid of finding out. <laughs> I did have that happen once where I thought in a final book I had to kill a character and I don't I don't kill characters as a general rule and I was very upset about it. Uh, fortunately, I, I managed to not do it, but it was a very near thing. Um, so the books that I have struggled with and I'm just going to go through is for me, I, I think it was Curtsies and Conspiracies. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was Curtsies and Conspiracies, which is the second finishing school book. This is my YA spy thriller book and it just got very complicated plot wise. And uh, so what I ended up having to do do was resort to three by five cards, which I don't normally use. This is before Scrivener, so I didn't have that option. Um, so I had actual different color three by five cards for pacing and, and plot reasons. And that was also because I didn't want to overwork it and make it too complicated for, I mean, I'm not writing, you know, a Dan Brown novel or something like this is still for a teen reader base. So like that, that was, that was a struggle, but it wasn't a huge struggle, but that was mostly kind of I don't know, a structural thing that was going on with that one. Um, for the Parasol Protectorate series, they all pretty went pretty much went smoothly. Blameless, which was my third book, had the biggest rewrite. So that's the only book to date, because I am a plotter, not a pantser. So I don't tend to lose very many words on a rewrite or have to put in too many very words on a rewrite. But for Blameless, I think I had to lose about 30,000 words and do a massive rewrite, which is very big for me. So that for from an editor, editing perspective, that was my hardest book. Now I think it's one of the strongest in that series, actually. But, um, but the flaw in that was character motivation, primarily. So my character was being kind of dragged along and she wasn't making the decisions for herself. And so I had to do a rewrite that made that a little bit more in, in line with that main character's personality. So that was that one. Then for the Custard Protocol, the first book was the biggest. And I actually have a blog post about that. It's like why Gail's life went bang or something like that. Um, I tried to write Prudence, which is a spinoff from the Parasol Protectorate series, at the same in the middle of the Finishing School series. Oh, so I boy, tried to I write two series at once. Yeah. Oh, and it turned I out that. I can't do it. Not when it is um, a book set in the same universe. So Prudence's voice ended up just being a muddle of Alexia and Sophronia. And that mm-hmm. wasn't unique or interesting. It didn't work. So I ended up having to offer to actually buy myself out of that contract because I was like, I'm not going to get this book to you until I can finish the finishing school series. And I was only halfway through. So there are two more books on the line. So I was basically asking for two years break. <laughs> from my from my other from my adult publisher and I was just like I'm, I'm really sorry Orbit but like I can't I can't do it I have I'm under contract already for something else um so I can buy out and then we can come back to this book in a couple of years or you can wait two years and they elected to wait two years and then once the Sophronia books and the finishing school was off my plate I came back to Prudence and it was absolutely fine I just kind of rebooted it and started it from scratch so that was that that was a learning process for me as a writer um, the San Andreas books all flow very smoothly for me. They're the least difficult for me to write, but um, I will say that the fourth one, which is currently unwritten and was supposed to come out like one or two years ago, um, maybe I think maybe just one year ago, but that's clearly being a problem child. And that is uh, that is our current climate situation in terms of the plague. Um, it's set locally because that's easy for me to write. And I don't want to think about or interact with the local world at all right now emotionally. So this is an emotional thing. And I'm recognizing it about myself. I was like, oh, I really want to write sci-fi because it it's away from Earth. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so a, a series that is set in my hometown, essentially, I don't want to deal with. I don't want to write it. I don't want to think about it. So that's why I'm struggling with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Delightfully Deadly books, the third one was the most complicated for me, but that's because it involves threads from both larger series. So it's from 
all three larger series actually. So it involves threads in the Kutzner Protocol Definition School and the Parasol Protectorate series. So I had to go back and reread large portions of those books. So like your massive series, Dan, that was like the one book version of that for me. Yep. It was just a lot of research into my own back catalog. And when you have 30 books in a universe, that's a lot of back catalog to deal with. So, um, so that's why that one was hard. Um, and then the other two, the Supernatural Society and the Clown Courtship, those were all easy for me to write. Intentionally, those tend to be like nuggety, standalone where there isn't a lot of callback, but still in the Parasol verse. Uh, Fitzgender was a breeze. Crudrat was a breeze. And then the other book in my my oeuvre that was really difficult for me was The Heroine's Journey, which is my nonfiction book. And that's mm. just uh, the workload is completely different. The amount of research and double checking and accuracy and all that sort of thing is just you don't get to make it up. So it, it, that was that was a lot of work for that reason. So yeah, those are those are my challenges. But I wouldn't I don't think any one of them was any more difficult of a challenge than any other. It's just I have 12 years being a professional writer and different kinds of challenges rear their ugly heads no matter what it's true yeah i wasn't thinking about the nonfiction at all because nonfiction is just dead easy for me just from the get-go always has been um but i didn't say which was the easiest and why partly because oh, did, she, a- did she ask what yeah she did and oh, you, okay. you wound up covering that already but no i didn't say which one was easiest for oh that, but who did yeah you okay so so i've been i've been thinking about it but you go ahead finish up what, what was easiest and why um, so mostly it's the final books in the series. So Manners of Mutiny, the final finishing school book was definitely the easiest of those four. Timeless was by far the easiest of the Parasol Protectorate, although Solace came really quick as well because I didn't know any better. Um, Reticence, same thing. That's the last custard protocol book. It was easiest. Um, Sumage Solution, the first in that series, was the easiest to write. And Vixen Ecology, which is the tie-in short that I just let my brain do whatever I wanted to. Um, the Delightfully Deadly books, because they've all been callback books, have all had, I think, more challenges than some of my other stuff. Um, Romancing the Inventor, I needed to find the right character's point of view to write from, and that then made it easy. So. Normally, when I'm writing the romance stuff, I do flip point of view. So I do both love interests, back and forth, POVs. Um, Romancing the Inventor, I started to try to do that, and I couldn't do Madame LeFou. Um, She's too close to home. And so I was like, okay, um, it has to just be from Imogen's standpoint. And then it was very, very easy to write. Um, How to Marry is exactly the same thing. And Tell Faith, like, crystallized in my brain as American, as very different I couldn't, I couldn't write it, but once I got her, uh, perfect. Um, fifth gender, also super, super easy to write. The problem with fifth gender is it's very like social construct complicated. So I did have to stop and really think about how the alien cultures worked in that book. So that was where the pauses were on that one. Um, and then this one, I just, the current project I'm working on right now, the, the, the third book is going very, very smoothly. So I suspect it will probably persist in my pattern of when I'm writing a series series where the books are linked to each other. Um, the third one tends to be the easiest or the last one. Yeah. Cool. Uh, sorry. I was distracted with the dog. Um, <laughs> well, what's your, what, what have been your easiest? The, uh, the easiest short story was, uh, has to be chicken noodle gravity. Oh, I love yeah, you. Everyone out there should go immediately listen or read that story. It is one of my favorite things Dan has ever written. It made me cry. It's wonderful. Go, go seek it. It's just such a good short story. Oh, yeah, Kitty reminds me the coffee service is probably the easiest because I did write it in two hours. Um, what it was That's one nice. of those before I knew any better. Yeah, it, it was. Oh God, it was back in ninety eight, nineteen ninety eight, and I wasn't thinking I would ever be able to do serious writing. And then I had this idea, and I sat down and I, I wrote it, intending it to be a monologue, and it turned out to be a story. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I didn't know any better, and it holds up. It's it's out on the market and it's pretty good. It's still, I, I still, still, occasionally, doing thing. still occasionally get emails saying, Oh my God, that was really freaky. Um, <laughs> my easiest uh, novel. It's hard to say because a lot of them have flowed really well, but I probably, it was probably down from 10. Um, Standalone. 
Yeah, standalone. And I think in both the thing that the coffee sir or the thing that uh, that the chicken noodle gravity and down from ten have in common is they are both books that were basically about where I was just completely in love and just mm-hmm. had to pour it out onto the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, I think uh, that's what's going on with this one I'm currently writing is I just love it. So, I mean, I have to say we haven't talked about Wyanaxon, which is the book I was working on last nano. Um, that one also was both one of the easiest and one of the hardest I've ever had to write mm-hmm. because it was easy because it was the first thing I could write after a long break. It was hard because it was nothing that I would normally, not my normal voice or style. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in my case, uh, the chicken noodle gravity was, um, I wrote that um, at a time when Kitty was having some serious health problems. Mm. Um, and it's about a guy whose husband is having some serious health problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote down from 10 right in the first blush of meeting you and all of our mutual friends. Mm. Um, and I had that first, that first, uh, that first weekend at the Kilning, mm-hmm. um, I just completely fell in love with everybody all at once. Mm-hmm. And I decided I needed to write, uh, this story about all of you based on my first impressions before I got to know you. And, mm-hmm. um, the and then I deliberately sort of mixed up the characters and everything so that no one would be a complete romantic clef of anyone else. Yes, yeah, no yeah. Except kind of one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the you character wound up coming through very strongly. Even yes, so. yes. If you know me personally and you read down from ten, there's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what was hilarious was that uh, was that by the time it was, I wrote the whole thing in about twenty five days. And by the time I released it, I had, you know, it had been a year, year and a half since I had met all of you. And the characterizations wound up hitting much closer to home than I expected. We give give good, we give honest first impressions, I guess. It really did. It's but, really funny for anybody who wants insider trading. I do a very brief voice cameo in the audiobook of Down mm-hmm. from Ten, but also uh, I am friends with the voice act act person, the voice uh-huh. talent who portrays <laughs> me, and it's really funny to be like, "Oh, you've been me in a thing where I was also <laughs> me in this thing." It's very uh-huh. mad. The, whole, the 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 full cast audio of that is extremely. It, it really is, and, and, and of course, and of course too. In addition, two of the actors who fall in love in the story were also in the process of falling in love in real life. In real life. Completely and, yeah. unrelated to recording the totally. book. And, yes. Just, yeah. And not the friends from this group either. Like different no, sets totally of different group. Like, yes. It's very funny. It's, yeah. 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 But, it is, it's such a fun story, I have to say. But, but I think with, sometimes with case, it's a little close to home. <laughs> but I think with the case of both of both of those stories, just that being being so so freshly and so much in love with the subject matter and with the people who the subject matter represented meant that I just did not want to disengage from the writing at all because I would have to walk away from something that was absolutely wonderful. And I think you're touching on something that like you know, not every author really addresses or talks about that much because it's a little wooey, but like you mentioned two stories, one of which was helping you cope with a hard time and one of which was helping you process an exciting new time. But Mm -hmm. like this idea that with our fiction, we are working stuff out, right? Like we are dealing with our own baggage on the page. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's when I mentioned why an accent, that was what was going on with that book too, which is why I'm not sure it actually makes a good book. Same thing for me with Vixen Ecology, which I've never released publicly because of that. You can only get it if you're part of my newsletter because I don't, I just want my true fans to have it. It's for them because it was me like dealing with what was going on in part. And like, and but you can't help it. Like it, it gets into your books, the things that you're passionate about, the yeah. bit of nonfiction that you read recently, the politics that you're trying to understand, the in my case, like right now, the nature of celebrity that I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out, those, those sorts of things. Yep. It leaks onto the page. Um, and sometimes it's total magic, the end result. Yep. And sometimes it's gonna be too off brand and not, not usable. <laughs> yep, it's true. It's true. And, and I mean the in- 
the entire Clark Lantham series, though they are sufficiently fictionalized to avoid legal problems, there's something in every book that's taken, and this wasn't intentional when I started it, but there's something in every book that's taken from a crime that I have either witnessed or been privy to. Mm. And um, I did. I, I just yanked it in in the middle of the first book because uh, in the middle of writing the first book because I needed something to give the story an extra punch. And mm. then in the second book, I was a little more aware of what was going on. And then by uh, book seven, <laughs> by book seven, I was like, okay, what haven't I strip mined yet? <laughs> yeah, there's. But, I mean. I talk about in, in um, the heroine's journey a little bit, but also in like some of the teaching courses that I've done over the years, the idea that like we can't get away from the fact that all fiction has a message inherent in it, that the mes a message of fiction is something that is being transmitted by the author voice. The theme of a book is being transmitted by characters, behavior and story arc and all that sort of stuff, but there is message. And like, and sometimes that message is transmitted unconsciously because we are unpacking and coping with this baggage on the page. Um, well, and so that exactly it is, is why to know that, that, you're doing that exactly right there is why I always object when you characterize it as a message. You just don't like the word. It's well, okay. Well, the, the message implies a degree of intentionality and propagandism that I don't think is conscious, especially in the best books that have the strongest. Well, I think it's rarely conscious. Uh, you know, and that's why literary criticism gets to go to town on books all the time because they, they, they're like playing about and trying to figure out awesome author messages. And the authors are like, did I do that? Was I that smart? Look at me go. Um, <laughs> I, whenever I'm taught in a, in the university level, I'm like, I sound so intelligent. I didn't mean to do any of that. I just wanted to make people laugh. But, um, but yeah, it's just, that's just the old literary term for it. Like I, you can come up with a new one if you want to, but uh but yeah, like, I, I, and, and that's, I mean, we, it, it behooves you to sort of know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with it, when you're dealing it out on the page, because, you know, you can't accidentally transmit the wrong message um, or a message you don't agree with or something polarizing or. Mm. Um, if you care about that, I, I deliberately don't care about that. Yes, because, you don't care about it. I care about it. This is a long running debate between the two of us. <laughs> well, yeah, it, but I deliberately don't care about it because to care about it means that I would have to cross the line into propaganda because I'm too good at doing complex systems on purpose. So I have mm -hmm. to put the veil there and, and let, let the world decide what to do with it. Yes. Also, you're not scared of the internet. I'm terrified of the internet. No, I'm absolutely. not scared. I'm, I'm absolutely I'm not scared terrified. I'm, I'm, I'm well defended and I don't care if people don't like me. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm really scared of what the internet could do if I decide if something went wrong. So I just, I, it has to be intentional. I have to like try it or like, I mean, I have made, not to say I haven't made mistakes and transmitted the wrong message by doing the wrong thing on occasion, but, uh, well, and the other, the other, the other thing for me is that I, I I grew up around a lot of the kind of people who will uh, intuit whatever the fuck they want based mm. on what their mood is. And I saw way too much of that same kind of thinking when I was doing my lit crit classes. Yeah, so, that's true. So, and the internet is, the internet is a, a haven for people who are, especially fandom, is a haven of people who are really good at yes. that kind of projective interpretation. And if I yes, try to will, control for that, I will drive myself crazy. They will willfully, willfully misinterpret you and also always take it in the negative. And also yep. most readers cannot help but bring their own baggage and personality Absolutely. to play, yeah. you know, like... And I'll occasionally get an email from somebody who's like, well, that's not my life experience for this character that I identify with. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I'm sure your <laughs> life experience is fascinating, but my weird tentacled alien is not you. I'm yep. glad you like them. Uh, still not you. Yep. Uh, mine, still exactly. my character. <laughs> yep. But you can't, I mean, but also those people, people who identify really closely with certain characters in your books are yep. the most rabid fans you can possibly get oh, and who love yeah. you and love your books and love you for having written someone yep. that they see themselves in. So, you, you know, it's a smooth. Yep. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. But uh, let's see, there was more to the question, but it is a different right. sort of thing. So I think, I mean, we've been well, going let's, for let's a Let's try to rush, let's, let's try, try to finish it out because okay. we have that many questions still. All right, that's true. Okay, so when do you know a book is ready for beta readers? There's actually oh. four little questions, but they're much, it's much easier if we break them up. So when do you okay. know a book is ready for beta readers? Uh, Dan, do you have a short Um. Uh, it depends on whether I'm using Just Kitty or whether I'm using any of the broader stable. If it's Just Kitty, it's ready for that beta reader as soon as I hit the end, unless mm -hmm. I feel like it doesn't work. Then I have to give it a pass through. Then you will rewrite. Yeah. Um, but uh, if I'm talking about people other than Kitty, it t it's a um, – I have to read it back through because one of the things that I have started to allow myself to do is I've gotten better at this is I've started to allow myself to write the way that I want to rather than the way that I should in terms of, you know, mm. final finished copy. And it shows up in the dialogue scenes because I started off writing scripts or I, I, I took a break from, from fiction to write scripts for a while. And then I came back. And so when I'm writing dialogue scenes, I will frequently not tag, not do any tags or actions. I'll just do the back and forth, the back and forth, the back and forth, so I can get the whole rhythm of going on. And then I'll go back when I'm reading for my proofread, and I will watch the scene in my head. And then when it feels like this person should take a bite of food or this person should take a drink of their coffee or whatnot, I'll pop those things in, and they double as dialogue tags and uh, and breath beats and other stuff like that. And if I'm Giving it to Kitty, I don't worry about that because she'll because frankly because she'll tell me the voices are not strong enough to sustain this if that's the case, and that's a good thing to know. And the and adding the other stuff in can obscure that. But if I'm getting it giving it to another beta reader, then I want them to have something approximating the finished effect. Yes, I agree. Uh, so I'm different because I have formalized beta readers who uh, read every single thing I write at this juncture, including a few of them did the nonfiction. I originally pulled them in simply for continuity checking for my um, Parasolverse universe because there's so many books in that universe and so many crossover characters that I couldn't keep them straight. So I wanted a team who reread all of my books pretty regularly, who are comfort readers, who were very familiar. I wanted the kinds of fans who find errors and correct me. Yes. <laughs> you know, like when I get a, a very minor character's eye color wrong or something. The kind of people who would write the nitpicker's guide to Gail Carragher's universe. Exactly, exactly. And I should say that there's a public-facing world bible for that universe as well, or for all of my universes that they have access to and change and so that, that and have recourse for and know how to use. So, you know, there's a whole like training process for my beta readers. Um, so the way I, but I still practice this with most of my books since they're generally willing to read anything I write, including the science fiction and the and the um, urban fantasy. So I do a rough pass and then a hot pass, which you and I have talked about before. Mm -hmm. Then I do, uh, then I like to let the book rest for a bit and work on something else, usually edits or a release of some other book. Then I'll come back and do one revision. So that's when I'm at that puts me at first draft stage, basically. Mm -hmm. um, then it goes to my developmental editor. If I'm using a developmental editor, very few times, like with short stories and a couple of others, I don't use a dev editor. Mostly I do. Um, then I revise it again based on the dev, dev editor. So now we're at third draft stage. Then I try and do either an audio or a new font pass. So I change the font, reread it, or put it in, put it, you know, back and forth to Scrivener or Word or whatever, or I read it all out loud. So that puts us at like fourth, fifth draft area. And then it goes to my beta readers. So my beta readers are right near the end of the process. So they're mostly designed to really catch like continuity errors or stuff like that. Sometimes they even don't get it until after the copy editor has had it. Um, and then after the betas do it, it comes back to me, it goes to my copy editor, my copy editor whips through it and gives me. Uh, by that point in time, the betas have caught a lot. Um, I tend to, it depends on which copy, I have several copy editors I work with and some of them are better than others. So sometimes I'll put the betas after because I have one beta reader who's also a very good like proof editor, catches those last, last, last backend typos and stuff like that. So yeah, and then if it's a project that something like Crudrat, 
where um, it's an older project, it's been through many passes already. Um, it's mostly just something I had to bring up and modernize and jive with the current state of that of the Tinkered Stars universe. Um, I'm gonna put that one out to my entire like power team, which is about 30 people. And they're just going to catch all of any any tiny tiny errors that there are. They're, they'll they'll be on top of that. So, um, you know, and not all of them will report in. Not everybody will have a chance to read it before. But I have a long lead line. I have a couple of months to get that one up and running, so I can take my time. And so that also makes a difference. What kind of time frame I'm working with? Mm. But for me, that's how it pretty much always goes. So what? people get from me out the back end is usually around draft six or seven. That's what the final draft is for me. Mm -hmm. yeah, for but me, it's what, what you yeah, want from your team, for, really. Yeah, for, yeah and, and this goes into the next question. Do you know when the, how, when do you know the book is ready to be published? And I have the most truthful and most useless answer to this ever. Mm -hmm. When it's done. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like cooking. Boom, it's done. Screwing with it anymore is going to wreck it. It goes out, even if I wish it could be better. Yeah. There's a point at which it's done. And one of the most important skills you can cultivate as a writer is learning the, the flavor of it's done. Yes, and the perfect the perfect is the enemy of the good. That's, oh God! Or, yes. or the or in our case, the enemy of the completed. Yes. Um, there comes a time with almost every book where you're like, yes, it could be infinitesimally better if I reworked three of those paragraphs, but I need to publish it because I need to make a living, and it, it's got to go out into the world. Yeah, and um, all the all the incentives line go in the same direction because you know there's there's different degrees people are motivated by aesthetics by um the goodness of the craft by the needing to build a career by needing to get a paycheck all of these things but all of them align in the same direction there is a point at which it's done yes and you cannot push it beyond the point of diminishing returns because the reason the point of diminishing returns is there is because that is the limit of your skill today and so you're not going to make it much better. You yes. have to go and do other things that stretch you in different ways that force you to build more skills. Also, there's always the possibility of overworking a story, which oh, especially and, and newer writers, it. It and then you it just kill you it. Like, like yeah. you said, like it's like the dish that like, now that said, there are a few stories out there that are a little bit like stews, like they rest and improve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're indie, especially you can go back and like tinker with a few things and you re-upload a new version or what have you. Yeah. But, but most of them are like, let it go like the, the breeziness of your own voice telling the story yep. even if there maybe are a few repetitions in or, or writer's ticks in word use or you have slightly too many said tags or whatever it is that you're mm -hmm. that you're concerned about readers are probably not going to pick up on that and there's a point where it it's too precise and it it doesn't it's not going to read comfortably mm -hmm. there's also a point it's gonna at feel, which it's going to feel mechanical yes yes if, and if you're if you're writing, if you start to be more obsessed with the structure of the prose than the than the style of the story, mm -hmm. um, your prose can actually kick people out of the oh immersive God, readers out of the immersive experience. Mm -hmm. And you don't. Some writers like that, literary writers like that, and sort of hunt for that, right? But like mostly when you're writing genre fiction, you just want to like cradle the reader in your hands and be like, "I'm going to tell you an amazing story. Come along this journey with me." Mm -hmm. And so overworking can actually break that suspension as well. So, yeah, and, it is and, really and, hard. And, and, and frankly, that's true even with literary writers. Um, and you really see this if you study uh, poetry. There were some poets that obsessively revised every time a poem got reprinted. Poe is a great example of this because it's easy to find the different versions. Oh, cool. But you can watch the, the curve, you know, one or two tinkers for Poe gave you the best version of the poem, and everything after that was not as good. Mm, yeah, and I thought it's fun the to tinkers see that really would enhance it. A, the tinkers that would enhance a given line would diminish the effect of the whole of stanza. Of the entire thing, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, I, and it's easy to see in something like poetry, of course, because mm -hmm. there's so few words on the page, so you can yeah. really notice when there's a change. Yes, that is. So that's definitely something to keep in mind as well. So, 
yeah, it's it's kind of like Dan says, it is it is kind of up to you, uh, unless of course you're under deadline to a traditional publisher or your own self-imposed deadline. And then uh it's the deadline that is that is dictating when you need to be done. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it looks like the last two questions, are there a certain series of edits that work for you and does it depend on the project? We just covered anyway, so. <laughs> yes, yes indeed, we just did. Um, and this is the point at which I say the other like sad truth that newer writers at least always hate, which is every series is different and every book is different. And each one has a new hookup and a new problem and a new crisis and a new uh, something or other that you're going to have to tackle, even the easiest ones. Yeah. So, um, and, here, you know, you and here's the upside. The upside of that is it means that if you're doing your job right and you're having these problems, you're not going to be bored. That's true. That's totally, totally true. But it also means you do have to like not groove yourself too deep and be yes. have a certain amount oh. of flexibility especially on finishing projects because Very there's a point, good point that point where you say i'm done sometimes is i'm done because you know amazon has borked you or whatever like it sometimes has nothing to do with the story but like right. knowing when you say that phrase and say i'm done i gotta get it out is 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 just um is a, a matter of instinct in part but it's also a matter of efficiency mm -hmm. yes indeed well, I guess that does it for us for today. Long one, but we had a bunch of yeah, questions. So, indeed. Yeah. Oh God. So I am now, I am twenty four thousand words behind you, unless we deduct that first sixty five hundred. Um, Whatever you want to do, Dan. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five days left. Five six, days left. Six days left, I guess, because it's the six days left because it's a. Uh, 31 day month and we're our last meeting is on the 31st so Are you you write on the weekends and i do not so you do true. have a chance you have a chance to get it's gonna up. be a tall ask but if i can if i can get 30 odd thousand words in the next week and you stall out because it's after a retreat i might <laughs> just be able to catch you <laughs> well tune in next week your listeners find out what happens and catch me <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow bye everybody